Thank you, Christy. Uh, once again, my name is Danny Householder. I'm a pastor here, and I'm really glad that we get to worship together. I've got a question for you as we open this new sermon series called On the Move with Mark. What do you think is powerful? What is power to you? Um, I, I want to give you a little bit of insight about something that I think is powerful. Uh, go ahead and take a look at the screen. So that was uh, about eight years ago, which is kind of hard for me to believe. And uh, that was at the Coca-Cola 600 um, in 2015. For me, NASCAR is power. I just love it. I love the roaring of the engines. Back in the day when I was growing up, this was the most beautiful sight in the world to me. Jeff Gordon's rainbow Chevrolet with the DuPont scheme all over it. I, I just loved this. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes, not because I was getting emotional, but because the windstream of the cars as they would blow past me would actually rush into my face so fast that I couldn't control my senses and feelings. I remember the first race I ever went to when I was six years old and truly feeling that thunder in my chest. Back in those days, these stock cars had over 800 horsepower thundering across the road or across the track. I mean, it just really blew me away. I remember feeling it in my chest. I remember waters, uh, tears coming out of my eyes. I remember being completely overwhelmed. I remember falling in love with this power. It was fascinating. That was until when I was six years old and I was at my first NASCAR race. And after the cars go by on one lap, my earplugs fell out. And my tiny little six-year-old hands couldn't get them back in my ears fast enough. And as I'm developing, my ears are really sensitive. And by the time that they come around the final turn at Pocono, they're coming down the straightaway and I hear it. It's roaring. It's thundering. And this time as they come by, my ears start to bleed. And I'm crying real tears of fear. And I'm scared. Maybe my, my ears weren't actually bleeding. But all of a sudden, like the power went from fascinating to terrifying. Like, I needed the earplugs to stand between me and the power in order to not be so afraid of it. I needed something to help me, to be in its presence. What's terrifying to you? Sometimes it starts off as something that's just powerful and it fascinates you. I kind of think that maybe yesterday the Jayhawks thought the Cyclones were just powerful and fascinating until they overwhelmed the Jayhawks. And all of a sudden, Noshun Noshuni became very terrifying to those demons in blue. Anyway, I'm, just, I'm totally kidding. That's just wrong. What, what is it for you? Something that's so powerful and it's fascinating until it kind of becomes terrifying because there has to be something almost in the way between you and it in order for it to stay beautiful. That kind of reminds me of the God that the Bible describes. And I know that that doesn't sound like the most pleasant God in the world, but I, I invite you to stick with me. We're going through this whole year, the whole Holy Bible in a year. Our goal is to read it, learn it, and live it. We don't want to just be biblically literate. We want to be biblically fluent. We want to live out the Word of God. And so far, we've gone through the book of Matthew. And this month, we're starting the book of Mark. If you're following both the New Testament track and the Old Testament track, you've already gone through Genesis and Exodus, and I know you just loved Leviticus, didn't you? <laughs> eh? Anybody? No? That's okay. Um, I also want to tell you, if, if either you didn't start the whole Holy Bible uh, readings or maybe you gave up on it, uh, I, I want to encourage you. I don't want to shame you. I, I want to encourage you. Pick it up again. 
Don't feel the pressure to catch it all up in, in one day, but, but just pick up again on today's reading. And good for you. You actually already completed today's reading. It's Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. You did it. Christy read it to you, and you did it. You completed today's reading. So now you can go back and read the whole Old Testament today. I just, just got plenty of time. There's no football today. It's, it's great. I, I just want to encourage you to pick it back up. Because in this Bible, you get to know a God who is truly so powerful. But he's different than all the other sorts of powers in this world. And I'll get to that in just a second. First, let's recap what we've learned about God so far. Again, if you're following the Old Testament track, or maybe you kind of know a few things about the Old Testament, or maybe you're just wondering about this God figure, here's what we learned in the first two books of the Bible. In Genesis, we learned that humanity was living in God's perfect presence, but then humanity fell. Sin enters the world, and there is brokenness. But God desires reconciliation with humanity, and he will restore the world back into his presence. He wants to have that relationship restored through a family, and that family is Abraham's family. And then in the book of Exodus, God continues to serve and love and care and redeem his people from the bad things in their lives. He frees them from slavery. He says, I want you to be close to me. I don't want there to be chains in your life that would keep you away from me. When they were living in Egypt, they would have been subject uh, to Pharaoh who would have demanded that they worship him that they demand, and demand that they worship all the other gods in Egypt. And God said, I don't want you to have those kinds of chains in your life. I want you to be with me. So he frees them. And then God promises to dwell among Israel. That was the name for his people. But here's the really interesting thing. When God descends and he's dwelling among them in this place called the tabernacle, something really strange happens. Nobody can enter his presence. What's going on? This great and powerful presence, nobody can enter God's presence inappropriately and live. It's wild. And if I'm not selling you yet on reading the book of Exodus, go for it. It's nuts. Even this great guy called Moses, who maybe you've heard about whether you know a lot about the Bible or not, he can't enter God's presence. Because you can't enter God's presence as a mere human and survive is what the Bible is telling us. What's the deal with that? How can God's presence simultaneously be a good thing and also terrifying? I want to kind of switch the analogy here because in the same way that six-year-old Danny needed earplugs in order to enjoy the beauty and the power of NASCAR— Something had to be done for God's people to live safely in his presence. See, sometimes when I think about God's power, I think about the sun. And what's the sun? The sun is pure power and goodness. And it is such power, it is such goodness, that when a mere mortal object in a corruptible object gets too close to it, it's destroyed. Now, God is pure power and pure goodness. In God's people, Israel, they were this corruptible people. They were prone to brokenness. They had fallen into sin. And getting too close to his presence would become terrifying because corruptible things cannot survive in the presence of perfection. So how in the world would God be able to fulfill his promise to dwell among his people, for them to live safely and confidently near him. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. That's the second time I've said Leviticus. And some of you invited a friend this morning. You're looking at them. You're just apologizing. Oh, no, you finally agreed to come. And the pastor's talking about Leviticus. Some of you who read the Old Testament so far and you've gone through the book of Leviticus, you're like, I shut that book yesterday. We finished it. Why are you talking about it again? 
Leviticus actually, it's kind of this beautiful thing. Uh, the key verse in Leviticus can be found in Leviticus chapter 19. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is providing this law, this set of rules, a guidebook, if you will, for people to be able to enter his presence. Why does God want his people to be holy? It's not to appease him. It's not to make him feel better. It's not to make him love them more. He already loves them so much that he is graciously providing a way for them to come into his presence. Corruptible people. He's finding a way. It is not to appease him. It's so that they can be together with this majestic, almighty, and would-be terrifying power if God didn't make a way. God wants his people, Israel, to know you may be corruptible, but you can be confident that you are safe living near me. Absolutely powerful. Should be terrifying. But the gracious God loves his people so much that he cares that they would feel safe around him. And I think that is so important because there are a lot of different powers in this world, right? And not all of them care about us like that. Some of the ways that we talk about powers in this world is we describe them as storms. And storms happen, don't they? I think that one of the biggest lies that you'll ever hear is that if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, and if you live your life with him, then storms will never come your way. Of course they do. And many of you know that all too well, don't you? Storms happen, and these powerful storms or these forces of sometimes evil or just mistakes or just sometimes a broken world that we can't quite understand. There are these powers, and they don't seem to have any care for us whatsoever. We know that today, and they knew that back in those days when they were trying to get back into this relationship with God, and God was providing a way for them. There must be a power out there that cares about me because all these other ones, they don't seem to. Keep in mind also when they're writing these books and they're writing these stories, they're surrounded by other societal cultures in which they have gods that don't care about them. They are powerful. They do have these divine abilities and strengths. But people are just an afterthought to them. But the God of Israel says, you're not an afterthought to me. I care about you and I want to protect you from the other powers, the storms, the uncontrollable things that are fascinating from a distance, but when you're in them, they're terrifying. And so they would write about this God who protected them, this power that actually cared about them. And when they would write about him, they would write about him as if he's calming the storms. Because the storms of this earth are no match for the creator of this earth. In Psalm chapter 65, it says, You are the hope of everyone on earth. Even those who sail on distant seas, you quieted the raging oceans with their pounding waves, with the speaking of a word. You have power over the most terrifying powers. There's another passage. This is in Psalm chapter 107. Some went off to sea in ships. They too observed the Lord's power in action, his impressive works on the deepest seas. He spoke and the winds rose stirring up the wave. In this ancient Jewish culture, as children would grow, they would learn about this God who had power over even the most terrifying things in this world, the storms, the seas. The storms and the seas became this deeply symbolic uh, understanding of God and God's power. 
Because God would be the only one to have power over such a thing. But God would use his power in the favor of people. I'm going to pause right there and I'm going to ask you to hold on to that for the rest of the sermon because I want you to see how that ties into the Jesus that Mark describes. It's a new month, so we're hopping into a new book of the New Testament. And this one is called The Gospel According to Mark. Now, let's go ahead and talk about some of the things about Mark. Here's some quick facts about Mark. Mark was actually written by a guy named John Mark. Uh, maybe to clear up some confusion with the Apostle John, some other Johns that show up in the Bible. This is John Mark. I like John Mark. My brother's name is Jonathan Mark. Uh, so it kind of makes me feel like I relate to John Mark in some ways. He's a friend of Peter and Paul. He wrote this gospel account very early on. Uh, he wrote this within 20 to 50 years of when Jesus, uh, 20 to 40 years of when Jesus had lived, died, and risen from the dead. Most scholars will say that Mark was an actual eyewitness account to these things that were happening. It's the shortest gospel account. So if you're like, yeah, you know, Matthew was kind of long. I really struggled to get through that. Maybe a chapter, you can boom, boom, pow, pow. You can just smack your way through Mark today. You could do it. Just take it like an hour and a half. It's amazing. Or, you know, if you like to take your time or you're like a slow reader like me, it might take you three hours and that's fine. The point is that you would get into it. Mark is descriptive. He's telling so many different stories. He tells more stories than any other gospel writer. And he's invitational. He's not necessarily telling you who Jesus is. I mean, he gets at that right at the beginning, but he invites you to reflect for yourself. He presents the person, the work, and the teachings of Jesus. And then he just asks you, who do you think he is? Here's everything that you need to know about him. So who do you say that he is? Mark tells you right off the top, here's who I think he is. This is in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Everybody say the word Messiah. Messiah was this word with deep significance for the ancient Jewish people, and it literally meant deliverer. Someone who would deliver them from the storms of life, who would save them from the worst things in this world. This is, what he, this is who Mark is writing about, the Messiah, the Son of God. And maybe you think if you just read chapter 1, verse 1, Mark is going to be preaching at you. But Mark only uses this one opportunity to tell you who he thinks Jesus is. For the rest of his book, he will not tell you what he thinks. Instead, he will describe to you what other people thought about Jesus. And the results might surprise you. Jesus' family? Not all of them thought very highly of him. It says this, when Jesus' family heard what was happening, Jesus had been going around, he had been preaching, he had been performing miracles, and he was gaining followers. He was becoming quite the local celebrity. And Mark says this, when his family heard that was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. My family says that a lot about me, but I, I actually am out of my mind. Pray for my wife, Abby. She's so great. They thought he was nuts. Who did they think he was? Mark's being very fair. Not everybody believed Jesus for who he was, but Mark's going to present to you the evidence and let you decide. And I want to dive into our Bible story from today, and maybe that'll help us decide. Who do you think Jesus is? Here's where we picked up today, Mark chapter, 5, verse 30, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side 
of the lake. Now, the lake that they're talking about here is the Sea of Galilee. Everybody say Sea of Galilee. It's a very famous sea. You can still visit it today. And this sea was famous for one thing especially, storms. This is a picture of a sign from the Sea of Galilee today. Uh, And if we could just read those out loud together, that would be great. I'm just kidding. Sorry. See, it says no entry without permission. Don't you see? And jumping off. (laughs) Obviously, it says that part in English. But that one on the right there is swimming is prohibited. And it's a warning. Great storms happen at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was over 600 feet below uh, sea level. And it was surrounded by these cliffs and hills. And so as wind would cross, it would dip down into the sea and it would cause these great storms. And the only people who would ever go out on the sea were fishermen. Now, Jesus happened to have some disciples who were fishermen. And Jesus said, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, one other thing that I do want to point out about this is Jesus and his disciples could have been getting very comfortable. Jesus was becoming a local celebrity where they had been. But now Jesus says, let's cross to the other side of the lake. And this other side of the lake that he's going to cross over to is going to be a place where they reject him and send him out. But Jesus says, it's worth going there anyway. Following Jesus is not a comfortable experience, but it is absolutely worthwhile. He is powerful. He is great. He is wonderful. He's also kind of terrifying because he leads us into some crazy places. And there's no doubt that in this situation... The disciples were led into a crazy place. Of course, this is the Sea of Galilee and a storm broke out. It says in verse 37, a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. You know just how bad this storm was because we see just right after this, the disciples are actually terrified themselves. Jesus is in the back and he is sleeping. I mean, imagine your life feels like it's about to end. You have water smacking you in the face. You know that this storm is bad because fishermen who lived out on the sea practically, who endured all sorts of storms, actual physical storms on this very sea, thought they were going to die. And then they look back and they see their Messiah sleeping in the back of the boat. I mean, come on, Jesus. What is wrong with you? I sleep through my my alarm a couple of times here and there, maybe hit the snooze button, but this is a deadly storm. And they say to Jesus what I think a lot of us want to say to Jesus a lot of the time. Don't you care? When the storms of life hit, and it's not just the physical ones, I mean the big storms that happen in your heart, that happen in your relationships, that happen in your life, It's easy to start to ask Jesus, who promises to have his presence in your life, who promises to be in your boat, who promises to be with you wherever you go, why isn't he doing something about it? I don't have an answer for you on that. I ask God these things a lot. And the only rational conclusion that I come to is, well, storms do happen. I know that much. And if I were to stand up here to you today and say, well, everything happens for a reason. I I don't have biblical basis for that. Some things in this world happen. And I don't think God sent them. I do believe that God is so good at creating. God is so good at creating that even the things he didn't send our way, he can repurpose them into something good. I, I do believe that. But the reality is we live in a broken world and we can't control it. This world is more powerful than me. The storms that come my way, I am simply no match for them. 
And sometimes I'm wondering, Jesus, why aren't you, why aren't you doing something about this? My goodness, why doesn't every single marriage work? Why isn't every single sickness healed? Why doesn't every single business thrive? Why do some people live in poverty? Why do people die? My goodness. I mean, I think about some of the darkest periods of my life. I think about some of the seasons of grieving. I think about my uncle who died from ALS. And I think about every single day begging God to heal him. And nothing happened. It's a storm. Why aren't you doing something? Don't you care? Don't you care? You know, something that I don't really like to think about in this story, but I kind of can't help is, if you've heard this story before, you know where it's going, right? Like, he's going to wake up and he's going to calm the storms. But what if he didn't? What if he didn't wake up? What if he just kept sleeping? What if the storm had buried him? Would he still rise? Would we rise? I want you to hold on to that one too. The story continues and Jesus saves the day. It says that he gets up. He rises from the back of the boat. And he shouts with a loud voice, silence, be still. That's a really polite way of paraphrasing what it really says in the Greek, which is, oh, shut up. <laughs> really, that, that's really what it means. And if you're a child and your parent doesn't want you to say S-H-U-T up, listen to them. They're right. And I was wrong. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Jesus stood up and he said to the raging seas, stop it. And immediately there's a great calm. Does that kind of power remind you of anyone? The ability to tell the seas, the storms, what to do. Mark's evidence, his storytelling, where is it leading you? Jesus then looks at his disciples. He says, why, why are you afraid? And it's a fair question. Don't get me wrong. It's a ridiculous question if the storm is still happening, right? Why are you afraid? He asks it in the present tense. Why are you afraid? And maybe you're asking that question too. He says, do you still have no faith? It says at the end of the story that the disciples are absolutely terrified. The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's almost like comedy, isn't it? The disciples are scared to death, it seems, when the storm is happening. And then Jesus calms the storm and now they're even more afraid. Jesus isn't asking them, why were you afraid when the storms were happening? Now that it's calm, now that I've saved the day, immediately the seas have gone to rest. Immediately, he didn't have to wait for the waves to start to settle down. Immediately, the, the, the seas have come to rest. Why are you afraid now? Do you have no faith, he asks them. Where is it? What's happening in your heart? Why are you afraid? What is it that they're afraid of? 
They are afraid because these young Jewish men in the boat with him grew up hearing stories about the almighty, unmatchable power of God that could speak to the seas and every single power that was unmatchable and untamable that they had ever experienced in their lives didn't care about them. And now here's the presence of God, the one who showed up in the tabernacle and nobody could get around them and he's in their boat. What's going to happen to them? But I think Jesus is asking, why are you afraid? Because he says, I've done everything to show you that you don't have to fear me because I love you. I called you by name to follow me. I, call you, I called you from your life of the mundane. I called you from the life of the meaningless into a life of purpose. I called you into a life where you're going to see the kingdom of God. I'm showing you that I heal people. I'm showing you that I would touch the sick. I'm showing you that I would raise those from the dead. Don't you know that I love you? Why are you afraid of me? I wonder if God is asking us sometimes, why are you afraid of me? Don't you know I love you? I, I know that the storms get crazy. I know that they're unmatchable for you. I, I know that you can't tell them what to do, but, but I can be afraid of the storms, not me. Why are you afraid of me? We run away from the things that we're afraid of. And I wonder how many of us run away from God because we're scared that he's just a big, mean bully in the sky. It's not a big, mean bully in the sky. He came to earth to love you. There is a difference between storms and Jesus. The difference between Jesus and the storm is Jesus loves you. He loves you. To the ends of the earth, he loves you. And it's not the finishing point of the sermon, but I think it's only fair just to talk really quickly about, like, okay, so how do we live in these storms with Jesus? Because storms, they do happen. How do, how do we deal with that? Because following Jesus, sometimes following Jesus is like actually walking into a storm. One is we can expect a storm. Sometimes I think that the most traumatic thing about trauma is we thought that it could never happen to us. So it's really hard to swallow. And, and I think that one thing about following Jesus we can expect is following Jesus does not mean that storms won't show up in my life. In fact, those who follow Jesus, according to the Bible, seem to run into them all the time. I suppose when I follow Jesus and when I'm with Jesus, I could expect a storm. It's not going to fix the storm. It's not going to necessarily make me feel better about the storm, but it might change my entry into the storm. The next is acknowledge the storm. You know what doesn't help? Shooing it away or acting like we could just pray it away. Like the trauma or the storm or the serious fear in your life, it, it is real. I, I think about the different anxiety that I've dealt with in my life and sometimes the things that I'm anxious about, those things aren't real, but the anxiety is real. And I can't just sit here and pretend like it's not. And maybe with the storms in your life, you refuse to admit that they're real. And oftentimes, we can't deal with the things that we don't admit are real. We're most afraid of the things that we won't admit are real. We keep them in the closet, and we call it a boogeyman, and we stay far away from it. But how do you acknowledge the storm for what it is? You acknowledge the storm for what it is by remembering the Lord of the storm. The one who will get to tell it what to do. You can acknowledge the storm because you remember the Lord of the storm loves you. Who is he? 
Jesus' family didn't think so highly of him at certain points. Jesus' disciples are seeing this power. So what are they going to think? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples this question. So who do you say that I am? Just before this, he said, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some people say you're Elijah. You're a great prophet. And he says, oh, but I want to know, who do you say that I am? I want you to know, this is the most important question that you'll ever answer in your life. It's more important than answering the question, will you marry me? It's more important than answering the question, what do I want to do for a career? It's more important than answering the question, where do I want to live? This is the most important question you'll ever answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter responds, and this is kind of this quick and very interesting dialogue. Peter responds, you are the Messiah. And then something very strange happens. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. What? (laughs) Peter, you're right. Why would Jesus tell them, don't go tell anybody yet? Well, for one, I think this follows the trend of Mark. He's wanting you to discover. Go ahead, take a look at the stories. And Jesus is telling them, I think in part, people are going to see. It's not up to you. I'm going to get my message out there. But he warns them not to tell anyone about it. And then he goes into this really crazy surprise that nobody who's reading Mark for the very first time in those days would have expected especially the followers of Jesus who saw his power and saw his authority and saw what he could do to the scariest things in this world. The one who has power over those things said that I will actually lose to those things. But it'll be for your victory, he says. Then Jesus began to tell them, immediately after Peter just said, you're the Messiah, the one who's going to deliver us, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. Who were they? They were the power in that society. He would be killed. He's talking about himself again. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. Peter took him aside and he began to reprimand him for saying such things. I mean, it sounds silly that Peter would rebuke Jesus. Jesus, how dare you tell us about yourself? I I mean, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't count how many times I've said to Jesus, why are you doing it this way? I don't, I don't necessarily have to know that. See, Jesus is constantly surprising us. I mean, yes, he's the Messiah, but do we really know who he is? Jesus would continue and he would say this to Peter, who just reprimanded him. Peter, who just called him the Messiah, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Ooh. (laughs) You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. He says later in Mark chapter 10, and I suppose that this would be the key verse of all of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is surprising you with who he is. He is surprising us. He brings in this surprising kingdom. And it's not a kingdom of earthly power. The first thing that Jesus says, according to Mark's gospel, is in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And he says, behold, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near. So repent of your sins and believe the good news. What's the good news? The good news is not 
that Jesus is going to solve all of our earthly problems right here and right now. The good news is that you get to have life forever. And knowing that you have life forever, knowing that you can be safe and confident, living in the presence of God forever, absolutely, indeed, changes the way that we live right here and right now. I have nothing to lose because it cannot be taken from me. I get it. The worst things in this life might actually temporarily take the best things in this life from me. But Jesus promises to return to you everything that's been taken from you and give it back to you in even better form, perfected form, belonging in the holy and present, the holy and powerful presence of God. And you're not going to need any sort of intermediary. You're not going to need any sort of earplugs. You're not going to need anything between you and God. You will be standing perfect before the perfect God. It's the kingdom of God. And Peter, and along with us so many times today, we try to use Jesus as this political pawn to say, I want to use Jesus to gain my power here on this earth. I want to use Jesus so that I can use as much power as I can to control what seems uncontrollable in my life. How wrong and backwards are we on that? I want to put it this way. Jesus doesn't need to rule a nation. Jesus rules the kingdom of God, which is better. I mean, seriously, because Jesus showed up in this world, it means that he cares about this world. It means that he cares about the way that we facilitate our societies. It means that he cares about the way that we create our laws. It means he cares about all these things. But with all due respect to those leaders and those powers, they have nothing compared to the power of Jesus. And Jesus is telling Peter, don't you go off and tell people who you think I am because you think that I'm a pawn for your political movements. You think that I'm a pawn for your earthly power. I am not a pawn. I am the creator of the universe who speaks to the wind and the waves and the storms and they bow down for me. So my question, and my question for me, my question for us, and I think probably the question that God would have for us too is, what are you telling people about Jesus? Like when Jesus says, sorry, it is not time for you to tell people about me. Do you, do you need to hear that today? Have you been going out and telling people that Jesus is represented by a political party? Have you been going out and telling people that Jesus belongs to the rich? Have you been going out and telling people that Jesus belongs to just one group of people? Have you been going out and telling people that Jesus can be used for personal gain? What have you been telling people about Jesus? You belong in the gospel according to Mark. Do you fall in the category of Jesus' family? Do you fall in the category of Peter and the other disciples? Or do you fall in the category of perhaps the second most surprising character in Mark's gospel? See, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and everybody's totally surprised that the power of God would, bow, would seem to bow down to earthly powers, to die at their hands. He's crying on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Perfect power says something like that. How is this possible? Who is this Jesus? Who is this power? Who is this one who just a year and a half before was standing in a boat and telling the storms to calm? And, and they did. 
Who is he? I, I mean, my goodness, Jesus is telling us loud and clear here, I didn't come with a spear in my hand, but in my side. I didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. I didn't come to defeat your opponents. I came to save everyone and defeat death. And when Jesus reveals his true character on the cross in fullness, after demonstrating all of his power for all of his ministry, hanging on a cross, he gives up his spirit to his father, he dies, and then there's this wildly surprising character. A man who was killing him. A Roman officer who may have been the one who pierced Jesus' hands with nails. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he died. When he saw how he died. Such power. Serving. Loving. Redeeming. The Roman officer said this man truly was the son of God. You might think you know Jesus really well because you've been following him as close as family or as close as some disciples. Are you really paying attention? He came to die, but he also came to rise. When Jesus awoke from the boat, it says that he rose from the boat. When it says the disciples awoke him, it actually uses this word agere, which means rise. And it is the same word that is used to describe how Jesus rose from the dead in the gospel according to Mark. The angel says to the women who approached the tomb, why are you looking for Jesus? He has risen from the dead. And this time, when he rises from that sleeping, when we're wondering, what are you doing? He looks at all the storms of the cosmic universe. Physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, relational. And he is saying, silence. Be still. One day we're going to experience the fullness of that. But today you get to answer this question. You've seen the stories. You've seen the evidence. Who do you say he is? Amen. Let's stand on up and sing.